All right, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 6. We're looking at verses 8 through 15 today as we continue our series through this book. Acts, chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. What we're reading here is an account of Stephen. Stephen is a deacon, and this follows the previous a uh, few paragraphs, which is the development and in, in really the, the, the prototype of the diaconate where we have officers of the church that are dedicated to serving and, and meeting particular needs within a local church body. Now we're going to focus on one of these deacons named Stephen. Beginning in verse 8, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we do pray that you would teach us today, that you would enlighten us, that you would change our mind if that's necessary, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would give us wisdom and understanding and grace and even power to do the very things you call us to do. Bless your word, Lord, as we consider it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you think of a time when you wanted to quit? Whatever. I can. I think, I think a lot of the times when we want to quit, right, we want to quit something because we are facing either opposition or a lack of appreciation after we've put in a whole lot of work, right? I mean, if you're thinking about quitting something, you're, uh, something that's good, right? It's usually something that requires a lot of effort, a lot of, a lot of output, a lot of investment, right? And so you put yourself into it, you put yourself out there, you do all of this work, you commit yourself, and then if it's underappreciated or you're getting a lot of pushback or you're just really suffering for it, you're, you're tempted to go, then what's the point of this? Right? Even the psalmists feel like quitting on God sometimes. Psalm 73, for example, right? They'll say, like, look, God, uh, I've, I've, I've kept your law. I've, I've, I've gone your way. I've put you first. At least I've tried to do that. I've believed in you. And I look and I see that the wicked are prospering and the people uh, of, of Israel are suffering while they're trying to do what's right. It seems like the whole thing has been in vain. They're tempted to think that way. We all are. Tempted to quit. And when you're called to do something by God, something that is incredibly difficult, something that requires divine power, and now you're wanting to quit, like, what do you do? How do we continue? How do we persevere when we're not seeing the fruit, the response, 
Well, here's what we see in this passage. I'll boil it down to this as best as I can. It's a bit long, but here's what I think we can see. The wisdom and spirit of God is what strengthens us to speak the truth to those who oppose it. And I don't just mean truth in general. I'm specifically referring to the truth of God. The truth of God to those who oppose it, to those who may be, you know, emphatic enemies of our message or those who just have no interest in it, but those who nevertheless, in one way or another, say, no thanks, not interested, do not want. When we're facing opposition to the truth that God has given us to convey, how do we continue? What strengthens us? It is the wisdom of God and the spirit of God. And make no mistake about it because we will face opposition and we will need God's grace to counter. So let's look at this, right? First, I want us to consider the method and the message of Stephen, this, this deacon, right? the method and message of this example of what faithfulness looks like in a culture, in a world that opposes the very message that we've been given. Look at verse eight again. It says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So Stephen, we don't know a whole lot about him. We do know he was just appointed as a deacon. Uh, We know that he is good with words. And if you stick with us over the next couple of weeks, you're going to see that. He's a good preacher. He's a godly man. He's a person of, of compassion, right? This deacon is full of grace and power, right? Now, that's exactly what was said was needed in the deacons, right? In verses one through seven. There a problem has arisen and the church needs to appoint uh, a new sort of officer. So they're like, I want you to appoint men who are filled with grace and power. And so Stephen is, is a great example of this. It's one of the reasons he's highlighted here. He is full of grace, right? It means he is, he is full of compassion and mercy and kindness, the kind that is undeserved even right? That's what God gives us, mercy, compassion, and kindness. We are in need. We do not deserve help, and yet God gives it anyway. Stephen is like that. He is a merciful, kind, compassionate person. He sees people in need, and he wants to help, and a lot of you are wired that way, right? That's, that's how you are. You look for people in distress, and then you say, how can I help them? You see people that are suffering, and you want to alleviate them in their affliction, Stephen was full of grace. This might even remind you of what was said about Jesus. If we go back to John's gospel, John chapter one, verse 14, speaking of Jesus, it says, and the word, that's Jesus, uh, before he was born, right? At the second person of the Trinity, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. See, Stephen looks like Jesus. Not physically, right? We don't know what Jesus looked like. He looked ordinary. That's about all we know. He looked like Jesus in his mercy, in his compassion, in his demonstration of grace. This is Stephen, right? This is uh, who he is, full of grace, full of power. This is how God is at work in him, full of grace in the demonstration of, of, of mercy and full of power. This should not be a surprise because we were told in Acts chapter one, verse eight, by Jesus before he ascended that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So again, it's just, it's, it's what we should expect. It's, it's a great example to see. Here is a person who is filled with grace and power, power from God. 
And this power, yes, it is displayed in these works of miracles, these, these signs and wonders that we see in this passage, but it's not just that because even more often the power of God is related to the ministry of the word. In fact, in Colossians chapter one, verses 28 and 29, my most favorite verses relating to ministry, it, perhaps the most important ones that, that I use often, but here in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, think of power, right? Him, speaking about Jesus, Paul says, him, Jesus, we proclaim, we preach Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. I preach to Jesus, to everybody, because my goal is I want to bring people into a place of spiritual maturity. And for this, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so the, the, the ministry, the, and even the ministry that Stephen is involved in here of speaking the gospel to people and pursuing maturity is hard. It takes great effort. And Paul says, I toil, I struggle, I pour myself out, I sweat as I do this work, but I'm doing so according to this divine power that God supplies me with. I'm not doing it in my own strength. Stephen is full of grace and power. Like it says in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. So this Stephen has a method and a message. Now his method is essentially here what we see, signs and wonders, wonders and signs, right? The miraculous. And most scholars, as they, as they look at this account, they say like, okay, there's not a lot of information given. We don't have a lot of information, but it looks like we're talking about miraculous healing here. That seems to make the most sense. That Stephen was a person gifted during the apostolic era, one of those rarer individuals who was gifted with the ability to heal a person of true organic illness, disease, whether that's a disability from birth where they cannot use their legs or a person that has grown sick through, through a, a virus or severe cases that could even lead to death. He can heal and he does this. Wonders and signs and these were not small interesting examples of some kind of vague power these were significant acts and demonstrations of God's power because what does it say it says a lot more than than what you some people might think because it says that this Stephen was doing great wonders and signs Typically, it just says signs and wonders, wonders and signs, but Stephen was doing great wonders and signs. These were known. These were legit. These were verifiable. People were taking note. And as we've discussed in the past, signs and wonders like this, the miraculous, these tended to happen at certain periods in the history of Israel or even in the history of redemption. It happened during uh, the time of various prophets in the Old Covenant and then during the time of Jesus and the apostles during the, the, the New Covenant. And so here we have Stephen doing great wonders and signs, healing the sick. He was known for this. And Stephen's going to get in trouble. It's not going to go well for him. But he's not in trouble for his method. He's not in trouble for the works of mercy that he's doing. People don't take offense at his works. They take offense at his words. It's his preaching that ultimately provokes opposition. And that's 
where we wind up next, right? We see this method and message of Stephen. He has a message, right? A gospel proclamation. We're going to be talking about that. That's what ultimately drives the opposition. And we see that explained this way in verses 9 through 14, the opposition of Stephen's enemies. In verse 9, we see this initial confrontation. It says, then some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, and then we have a, a bunch of listings of, of, of different groups of people, but they all seem to be tied together. Now, the, the synagogue of the freedmen, there's, again, there's some debate about exactly the historical context in which this works, but most seem to say that, well, this synagogue of the freedmen was probably a synagogue that was founded by former POWs of prisoners of war, these Jewish brothers that had been imprisoned and now they've been set free and they've come back to Israel and they've established a synagogue where the law would be read and discipleship would happen, you know, in a Jewish context. So, but whatever it is, whatever's happening, we have these various groups of Jewish men that are gathering in synagogues and whether it's two or, and they're all kind of grouped together or whether they're all, they're all individual, these people are in opposition to Stephen and to what he is teaching. So you see that all of these people rose up and disputed with Stephen, an argument is started. So just, I want you to note here that the opposition is coming not from an individual, but from groups of people who have a shared perspective and ideology. And these groups that have a shared perspective and ideology are debating, d- discussing, arguing. They're, they're going after Stephen because they don't like his beliefs. And the reason this is so painful for them, apparently, is because and it oftentimes happens, the things that Stephen is talking about are overlapping with the things that they believe and they're not complementary. They're in contradiction to each other. So they've, they're offended. They are wanting to dispute, debate, and argue. And so they do it. So time is passing. Stephen's out there healing people. He's out there preaching and teaching. And now he's starting to debate with these guys because they, they, they're so triggered over what his message is. And look at verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They can't overcome Stephen's strength. And it's not really his strength. We're not talking uh, uh, about his own natural abilities. They could not withstand him and his arguments, not because of his natural abilities, not because of the way that he's been gifted, but because in him, he has the wisdom of God and the spirit of God. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. The wisdom. The wisdom of God is true understanding. Right? True understanding, it, it, it means that, that he can rightly understand and interpret God's word as it applies to our lives. He is, he is able to make sense of the world because God is enabling him to make sense of the word. So he can understand scripture. He has insight there. He's able to communicate scripture and apply it to life, to the way that we're supposed to live He's able to articulate this in a way that can be shared with others. He has the wisdom of God, and the wisdom of man is never any match for the wisdom of God. They can't overcome this wisdom from above, nor can they overcome the spirit of God, because it means that God is with him. 
As he's debating and, and, and facing this opposition, which is only going to become intense and get very ugly, he has the spirit Right? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And now he is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And there he stands. And God is with him. And God is in him. And God is at work through him. So he is being empowered. And he is being made to be a blessing. And even though they may not believe that God is in him and with him, they can't help but see the effect of that reality. And this is why his opponents, his enemies here, those that, it's not, these are not people that he hates, these are people who hate Stephen, because they cannot overcome what he is saying because of the wisdom of God and the spirit of God, they decide to play very dirty and lie. They begin to make things up, misrepresent the truth. So there's this arrest and these accusations that are made in verses 11 through 14, listen, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon them and seized him and brought him before the council. And there they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple and the law. You get the idea. You see it. They are lying. These are false witnesses. In verse 11, they secretly instigated men to say this, to say what? They secretly instigated these paid actors, basically, to say what? He's blaspheming. He's a blasphemer. He's speaking against Moses, our greatest prophet, the, uh, the one that led Israel out of captivity. He's speaking against the temple. He's speaking against the things of God. Is, is Stephen ever blasphemous? No, not in fact. Stephen is not ever blaspheming, and you'll see this next week. Stephen preaches the truth. He honors God. He speaks of the Lord. But to them, it's blasphemy because either it is in their minds legitimate blasphemy because they so disagree with what they're saying, even though Stephen is correct, or they know there's no real blasphemy and they're just trying to get Stephen tied up and in trouble. So we've got these false witnesses and then there's this arrest, right? So we've got false witnesses accusing him of blasphemy. And in, what do we see? We see like, oh, well, the, these, these people that are at odds with him are stirring up the crowds. They are, they are, they are instigating people, right? They, they, they are, they're stirring up the people so that they will be riled up and angry and then respond. They're manipulating the situation, they're manipulating the situation. They're spinning a different story, right? They're, they're telling a different story. It's a, it's a new narrative, right? It's the way people say it today, that they are presenting. And now they're given these specific charges, right? Okay, you're, you're being accused of saying things against, against what? What kind of blasphemy? Well, they they're say you're, you're speaking against the temple, right, where we gather for worship. You're speaking against the law, right? And... Um, Oh, and, and, and this Jesus, we hear that you're saying Jesus is going to come back and he's going to destroy the temple and he's going to change all of our customs. These are the charges. And well, this, this, this really isn't accurate, right? And this is, this is what happens. The church, Christians, uh, are oftentimes either misrepresented um, or they are misunderstood. And there might be a, a mixture of that happening here. Jesus came, and, and, and Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, I have not come to abolish the law. Jesus was not against the law. I'm not going to come to abolish the law. Jesus understood that the law, as Paul says, is holy, just, and good. Jesus would delight in the law, like the psalmist says. 
He says, I have not come to abolish the law. Jesus said, I came to what? Fulfill it, right? I came to fulfill the law. I keep the law. I delight in the law. It's my law, right? Jesus says, my law. So yeah, I, I keep it. it. It's a part of what he preached, right? Jesus preached the good news, which meant he starts with the bad news. He preaches the law. The law says, this is how God wants you to live. This is what God has given you to rule your life, to structure your life. So here it is. Do this. And then the law reminds us, you don't do those things. You do the opposite of these things. You have broken these laws. And then the law says, you know what you need? The law says you need righteousness, but you don't have it. You need forgiveness, and you can't earn that. Uh, you need a savior. That's what the law does. And Jesus preached that law. And then he preached the good news that the love of God is extended towards undeserving sinners and that by his grace and his mercy, he provides the righteousness that we lack, the forgiveness that we need. He does so all through Jesus. That's what Jesus preached. The Christians aren't against the law, not if they have good theology. And did Jesus say he was going to destroy the temple? No. No. Now, Jesus did say, if, if you destroy the temple, I will raise it up in three days. He says this in John 2. If you destroy the temple, I'll raise it up in three days. And even John says he was talking about his own body. He was talking about himself. Jesus understood that he's the fulfillment of the temple. I am the temple. And you're going to kill me, but I'll rise up in three days. Now, maybe there is also some misunderstanding here because Jesus does in Matthew, Matthew 24, verse 2, he does talk about that this time is going to come when the temple will be destroyed that Israel is bringing this upon themselves. He's like, the temple is going to be destroyed. He predicts what happens in AD 70. So maybe there's some misunderstanding. There's definitely some misrepresentation. And yeah, is, is, does Jesus do away with these customs, the customs of Moses? Well, yes and no. It, it certainly is true that, that the people of God, that the church, that Christians are not held to carry out these, these old covenant laws these civil laws and these ceremonial laws, the ceremonial laws are all fulfilled in Jesus. He is the temple. He is the sacrifice. He is the priest. He is our savior. All of those sacrificial ceremonial uh, laws are fulfilled in Jesus. And those civil laws that governed Israel as a particular nation in a particular time as a theocracy, there may be much to learn there, but they are no longer binding on us. So yeah, we, we, I mean, we, we see this in... In, for example, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head and rule of all things. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you also are raised with him. Like you were circumcised. Like the argument was, like there were these Jewish brothers who were saying like you need to be circumcised and keep the old covenant law. And Paul says we've been circumcised in Christ. There's, there's no need to keep this law anymore. We are set free from this, right? He also says in verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of a food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath 
These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Again, saying these old covenant laws that are mandating you live a particular way are not binding on us. We follow the will of God, the law of God, as it is revealed to us, as it is made known to us, but we see this not in that particular context or setting. So yes, there, there's some truth there, but you can see what's, what they're doing is they're trying to say, listen, you people are upending our faith and that's what you're trying to do you're trying to establish some sort of some sort of a sect that's going to war with who we fundamentally are when the reality is they're actually showing them the fulfillment of the whole old covenant and they're missing it misunderstanding and misrepresentation will always be a part of our experience as christians as 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 churches in the world we will be misunderstood. It's not always that they're trying to get you. Sometimes people just don't understand, right? It's like they're not coming to get you. They just don't get you. Does that make sense? It's like they, it's hard for them to wrap their brain around some of the things that we believe. I mean, I, I've heard Christians be referred to as narrow-minded and super, or superstitious, right? So it's like, well, which one is it? Right? You can be narrow-minded and superstitious at the same time because superstition seems to be pretty open, but narrow-minded seems like you're pretty closed. But when I hear this said, and it's been said to me, like, oh, you're very narrow-minded, the idea, they actually, they, they're, not, they're not like making an accusation about me that, isn't, that they think isn't true or know isn't true. They actually think this is true and they say, oh, you're narrow-minded because you just believe this book and like all truth is in this book and, and you're, just, you're not open. And the reality is, is that like Christians historically are very open the Bible does not contain all truth. The Bible is all true, but it doesn't contain all truth. The Bible doesn't tell me how to fix my car. And even if it did, I still couldn't do it, right? Uh, the, the Bible contains truth and it is absolutely authoritative in all things relating to our faith and practice. But there is truth in the world, right? And so we are open to truth. We want truth now, this is our ultimate source of truth as it relates to faith and practice. But we're not narrow-minded. We're open-minded. I think we're more open-minded because we actually accept the truth that is in the world and the ultimate truth that's in this book that they reject. You know, we're accused of being narrow-minded or superstitious because we believe in things like a, like a ghost that, that's holy and, uh, and he, he dwells in us. And they, they think, oh, that's just a bunch of superstition. You can be led and convicted and you feel it. It just sounds like a bunch of mumbo-jumbo to them. They think we're illogical. Sometimes they'll think that we actually believe that we are better than other people. This is different than us being called hypocrites. We'll get to that. But they think that we think we're better than other people because we condemn sins, right? Because we say like, well, this is, this, we live a, a peculiar way. We, 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 we want to be consistent. And so, oh, you must think that you're better than other people when the reality is when you talk to healthy churches or a healthy Christian, we don't think we're better than people in the world. The, the fundamental difference is that while we're both sinners, we have found grace that we don't deserve that has cleansed us of our sin and put us on a different path. We're not better. It's just by God's grace, we are now better off than we were, right? We are on the right side of God and not because we are better, but because God is generous. So no, we don't think that we are holier than others. 
We are misunderstood or we are misrepresented. Sometimes people will just lie. They will tell truths that they know aren't true. Like they really, it's like they choose, they choose to, to hold this position when either they are refusing to acknowledge or they're, they're refusing to actually look more carefully. And this is true when we're called hateful or hypocritical. You are a hateful hypocrite because you condemn in others what you yourself did. Right? This, is, this is a good example, right? Oh, so like, you know, I, I might be considered um, a, a hateful hypocrite because I am saying, listen, you should only have sex in the context of marriage. Outside of that, it's off limits. And then, well, what's the, oh, you're a hateful hypocrite. I'm, I'm hateful because I'm, I'm trying to deny people pleasure and satisfaction and I'm a hypocrite because I had sex outside of marriage before I was a believer. So now they would say you're a hateful hypocrite. When the reality is, it's like we're, we, none of us are hypocrites because we condemn what we did. We would be hypocrites if we condemned what we do without admitting that we do it. We are hypocrites when we condemn what we did without ever admitting that, yeah, we used to do that thing. You see, it's not hypocritical to say, I made mistakes and I went the wrong way and I don't do those things anymore. I regret that and I'm trying to encourage other people to avoid the same mistakes that I made. That's not hypocrisy. And they genuinely know better because people learn from their mistakes and they take a different path. I'll give you a, a good example of misrepresentation that's recent. Christians were misrepresented when this whole Roe v. Wade was leaked and people know that it looks like Roe v. Wade is gonna be overturned. It's a, it's a, it's a national uh, you know, law that, 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 that guarantees women have the right to have an abortion, to take the life of the, of the infant in their, in their womb. And so this is likely to be overturned soon. And when it is, it doesn't mean abortion is eliminated. It means that each state now can determine if it will allow abortion or not. So a number of states are going to outlaw abortion and other states will certainly keep it. So overturning Roe v. Wade is good. But a lot of people um, on, on social media in particular were challenging Christians saying, and they really thought they, 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 were say, they had some good take, right? Here was the accusation and the misrepresentation. Oh yeah, so what are you gonna do? Who's gonna, who's gonna help support these kids? Who's going to adopt these kids? Are you willing to adopt kids? Y'all just talk a big game about being pro-life. You don't really care about women. You don't really care about mothers. You don't care about these kids. You only care about these babies while they're in the womb. As soon as they get out, you no longer care. And the reality is, the embarrassing reality for them is, is that yeah, the church has been pursuing adoption and orphan care, um, foster care. The church has been creating and maintaining uh, pregnancy care centers for a long, long time. In fact, when you just do the research, not religious research, you go and look at the research, who is doing the adopting in our country. Of all the adoptions that happen, um, you know, we, we, you start to look at like, okay, how, how, what's, what, what's the percentage, right? Christians that are going to church, they make up the biggest percentage. Like, let's put it this way. Christians adopt more than twice as many as, as, as the world, or maybe to put it a bit more accurately, uh, more than twice as many Christians adopt than non-Christians. More than twice as many. 
And we are the ones that establish these, these care centers and we do maintain them. And, and our church is, I think, a pretty common example of that. A number of, of adoptive families and people that do foster care, people that have attempted to adopt and haven't been able to. And we have a much higher percentage of, of people than non-Christians who are considering and contemplating adoption. You can look at those stats. It's a rather unfair accusation. So we are misunderstood and we are misrepresented and this can be overwhelming because you face opposition, opposition, opposition and you just want to quit. How long are we supposed to go and face the opposition before we just get tired or afraid? It makes me think of William Carey. William Carey was a terrible businessman and he was bald. Two strikes against him, just like me. Bad at business, bad at hair. William Carey was a cobbler, good cobbler, just bad businessman. Cobbler doesn't make pies. Cobblers make shoes if you don't know. So William Carey, we're talking 18th century. William Carey was called by the Lord to go to the mission field at a time when a lot of Baptists were not about it. They were like, mm, if God wants to save pagans in other places, he'll do it without your help. That was said to him. And so uh, William Carey is now known as the father of the modern missions movement, right? Where we raise up people, train them, and send them to preach the gospel in lands far away, a cross-cultural context where they have to learn the language and translate the Bible and, and preach the gospel, make disciples in a totally different place. William Carey, he's the guy. He went to India. Went to India because he wanted to preach the gospel. So he goes there and he preaches the gospel. He gets people together. He preaches. He's working on, on, on translation and stuff. And a year goes by, a year, preaching all the time, every day. How many converts? Zero. Another year goes by, no converts. Years three, years four, finally. Wait, no, no converts. We have no converts. Year five, no converts. Year six, not one convert. When do you quit? When do you go, maybe I'm not the guy. I mean, if God was in it, wouldn't he do something? He didn't see a convert till year seven. Seven years. What the heck? That's hard. That's a long time. Why didn't he quit? Well, he, he understood that he was called. The backing of the church and he received from the Lord the strength, the wisdom, and the spirit. This is how it works. The wisdom and the spirit of God is what strengthens us to speak the truth to those who oppose it. See, you've got the method and message of Stephen running straight into the opposition of his enemies. And that's where you see his courage in the, in, in the face of this conflict. You see how verse five ends this, this pericope, right? This story, this, this scene. And gazing at him, there's, there's been this long debate. Listen, this is a whole court thing. This takes time. Like there were, there, were, there were witnesses that had to be, well, coached because they're lying, a lot of them. Like they, there were witnesses, they had to get it on the calendar because you can't just like roll into the Supreme Court, right? That's, that, that, that's what this is. So they had to, all this took time, arguments were made. And then while gazing at Stephen, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. At peace, confident, joyful, shining. 
His countenance was bright and strong. He wasn't afraid. Why? Because they could not overcome, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. He could persevere with his message just like William Carey. So what do we do? What do we take away from this? I'll keep it simple. And it really does revolve around this. Uh, two, two, two simple ideas. We do have a method of grace. As Christians and as a church, we have a method of grace. Our lives should be oriented towards other people and helping them when they're in need. And I see this in a lot of you. I see it. It's encouraging, right? We see this in those who serve in the diaconate. We, we see this in, in people who are just have large hearts that love their neighbors and they, they're looking for the opportunity. Oh, someone is in need. Someone, someone is discouraged. Someone needs help and you, we want to assist them. This is what it means to love our neighbors, right? To not love in word, but in deed. That's our method of grace. Stephen lived it. But he also maintained a message of grace. Right? We all are called to this method of grace. We're also called to share a message of grace. We do have a message, not just a method. Some people are content to stick with the method, right? Because you get less opposition. You start sharing the message, you're gonna get opposition. You preach law and then gospel, you're gonna get some pushback. You're going to get some hate. And when we forget our message, we wind up in trouble as churches and as Christians. And sometimes we do. We just kind of forget. We drift, you know, it gets hard. We get distracted. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes people and churches will actually exchange it. They, they seem to make a conscious decision. You know what? This message doesn't work. I've got a more, a, a different message. And sometimes it's a more hateful message. It's a, some, I've seen churches let go of the message that God has given us to share to a different, more political message that is aggressive and angry. Even if they're right, it's not the message God gave us. And then I've seen other churches, they'll, they'll drop the gospel and they'll pick up something else entirely. And now they, they, they have a, a soft feel good. Your life can be awesome and amazing if you just give us some money kind of a message. We have a message. Do you know what it is? Maybe you're here and you actually don't know what I'm talking about. Like, what is the message of the church? Is it, is it transforming culture? Is it taking back our, our government, making it Christian somehow, as if it ever was fully Christian? Like, what, like what, is, what is our message? Is it do better? Is it, is it stop being so gross? Our message is very simple, that we are all sinners in need of mercy, that we all deserve judgment. This doesn't mean that you are the worst person in your neighborhood. It doesn't mean that you aren't a relatively good person as you relate to other people around you. But it does mean before God, None of us measure up. Before God, we are all guilty of breaking his laws, of not putting him first, of not worshiping him fully and truly and purely. Our message is that we are all sinners who need mercy, what we don't deserve. We need God's forgiveness, which we can't purchase. 
and God gives it to us freely. He gives us the righteousness we lack. He gives us the forgiveness that we need and he receives us to himself all through Jesus Christ who is the substitute of all sinners who believe. Gift, mercy, grace. We have a method of grace and we have a message of grace. God saves undeserving sinners because he loves us. Yes, we're going to be misunderstood and yes, we're going to be misrepresented and we are called to persevere in preaching with patience. And um, I'm gonna run out of gas pretty quick if I try to do that on my own. But God doesn't expect us to. We can persevere in preaching, proclaiming this good news to the world around us because we have access to God's limitless grace. He gives power to his people who are called to make disciples. He gives wisdom to everyone who asks and he gives his spirit to all who believe. You can continue. You do not have to quit. You have all of the resources that you need to persevere. God gives them to you in his word. He gives them to you through his church. He gives them to you by the ministry of his spirit to be a people who have a method of grace and a message of grace that leads to the salvation of sinners. So let's pray and work towards that end together. Let's pray. God, we do ask that you would, um, that you would kindly encourage us and work in us to be about this message, that we would have hearts that are big for you, that swell with love for our neighbors, for those that are even against us, or at least against our message. Pray, God, that you would give us opportunity to love the people around us, to extend the gospel message. And even if, Lord, they won't receive the message, we pray that they would receive our method or our work as we have the opportunity to offer it in the name of Christ for his glory. And we pray all of this for your glory and for the good of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.